This is Business of Home. I'm Dennis Scully, and welcome to the Thursday Show. Later on, I'll be talking to Professor Annetta Grant about her research on how media outlets like HGTV impact homeowners. But first, we're going to catch up on the news, including how industry brands are targeting Gen Z, the environmental consequences of home demolitions, and a look at our summer print issue. To do all that, I'm joined by Business of Homes Editor-in-Chief, Caitlin Peterson. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Dennis. Excited to be back with you this week. Delighted to have you back on the big show. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. You had a great show on Monday with Jansara Ruth, the co-founder of the Healthy Materials Lab. Let's talk about it for a second. What were some of the highlights of that conversation for you? Well, Caitlin, before Fred went on vacation, in <laughs> fact, his very last words to me, because he knew I was going to be interviewing John Sara while he was away, he said, now, Dennis, I don't want you and John Sara to have, quote, a doom and gloom conversation that the world is ending and that everything is toxic and we're all going to die. Yeah. <laughs> I said, OK. I said, no problem, Fred. I am not going to have a doom and gloom conversation. And I, I think... Listeners will find it's a it's a delightful conversation where through John Sora's expertise, we're able to give designers some questions to ask and and plenty of things to learn about the materials that designers specify every day. As someone who's got a pretty specific take on sustainability, Dennis, mm. did you come out of this conversation feeling more hopeful, feeling like there's a path forward for designers to make smarter choices? Where did you land at the end? One of the things I was very excited about at the end of this conversation, we wrap it up by talking about the tremendous opportunity that designers have to make a huge impact when it comes to affecting change. Mm -hmm. And we actually give designers, there's a, there's a course that designers can take online and they can learn a lot more, but also there's just a lot that they can do to help move the industry forward. And I'm hoping after they listen to the show, they will want to. Amazing. Okay, we're gonna get to the news in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by Forehands, a leading source of design inspiration for interior designers, architects, retailers, and more. Forehands will introduce over 350 new styles this summer for every room in the home. See their new collection plus top selling pieces at their Las Vegas Summer Market showroom from July 29th through August 3rd. Follow them on Instagram at Forehands Furniture for daily inspiration, or visit forehands.com slash BOH to become a trade customer. That's F-O-U-R-H-A-N-D-S dot com slash B-O-H. Hi, I'm Caitlin Peterson, the Editor-in-Chief of Business of Home, and I'm so glad you're here. Our team works tirelessly to bring you the industry news you need to know. We're also talking about what it feels like to run a design firm. And you can find those conversations on my podcast, Trade Tales, which features heart to hearts with designers getting real about the challenges of creative entrepreneurship. The show is proof that there's no one right way to grow your business. Some weeks, the focus is on improving systems and processes. Others, it's about how sometimes getting out of your own way is what it truly takes to spring ahead. No matter the topic, we're taking a close look at how to build a better design business. And I hope you'll join us. Tune in to Trade Tales every other Wednesday, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 
All right, we're back, and it's impossible not to realize that Barbie is everywhere, Caitlin. Well, Dennis, were you standing in line for tickets for the opening last weekend? Yes, yes, I was able to catch Barbie in the uh, in the delightful small town of Bronxville with a with a bunch of little girls. I didn't feel awkward at all in that crowd. What was the energy in that room? <laughs> There was there was a lot of pink. There was a mm-hmm. lot of pink and uh, and a lot of good energy. A lot of happy moms taking their little girls to see the movie. And I gotta say, the movie did not disappoint. A good time was had by all. That's amazing. Well, I know you got into Barbiecore last week with Felix, but the BOH newsroom had our own takes on it before the film debuted last week, and it was a lot of pink there too. We did a by the numbers analysis to understand how. Barbie quarter is hitting the design world um, and how that hype has really shaped the way people are searching and shopping for design. Um, So interestingly, Pinterest saw a 1,135% increase in searches for Barbie aesthetic bedroom um, in the last (laughs) year. But also, you know, on a platform where people really are transacting, First Dibs saw more than 100% year over year rise in searches for Barbie as well, which First Dibs isn't the first place I would think to search for Barbie furnishings, but you know, people are out there, they're shopping, they're looking. We also covered the Barbie Dream House, which has been, you know, a real topic of conversation on this show. We asked writer Shelby Wax to talk to designers about how the Barbie Dream House inspired them to think about home differently, which ended up being a really lovely, heartwarming piece about how some of the toys that you grew up with can actually shape your future career aspirations, shape the way you think about home, and how play can really become passion or help people understand that home was their passion. Well, I mean, and and it was fascinating. And, and listen, I now know more than I ever imagined I would know about Barbie's dream house, having interviewed a German architect <laughs> who, who did an architectural research study on the whole thing. So what I was delighted by, as you were just saying, was discovering how many people learned about design and space and color and and through playing with these dolls and 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 it's so striking, Caitlin, when you when you learn that it wasn't until 1959 when this doll comes out mm-hmm. that that there weren't Dolls that weren't babies, where, where right where women right, had right. To, had to just take care of a baby and learn how to be a mother, but instead they they had a they had a, a more adult doll to play with, and so therefore could play a whole bunch of different games and 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 grow in a very different way. I love that some of the designers told us that it was you know the dream house was the first place where they got to make their own design decisions or they talked to us about the fact that you know I would spend hours setting up the dream house and I guess the doll can live there like I guess we can play with her too but <laughs> it wasn't really about playing dolls it was sometimes really about creating her environment and what a beautiful thing to be able to tap into at a young age and then translate into your career. Dennis, I have one question for you. Barbie core, Barbie mania has been sort of seeping into the media, into the culture for the last year or so, kind of in anticipation of this movie. What do you think is sort of the lasting impact of a design style, a movement, a trend like this? I can't help but think of Sasha Baikoff's bedroom at the Kips Bay Showhouse. And that was such a great moment. And I, I, I hope 
that plenty of searches are pulling up images <laughs> of that bedroom when people are searching for Barbie because there were so many people that loved that look and were so excited by that. So that's the reality part. And I think there are people that are thrilled by the whimsy that all of this Barbie core and the the freedom that that people felt to go a little crazy with all of this. I hope some of that stays around. I love that. I mean, I could take or leave the hot pink personally, but I think <laughs> keeping that sense of play is such an important thing to hold on to. I agree. And, and so hopefully elements of it right. will stick around, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, moving on. In this week's News Digest, we wrote about three home brands that are trying out new strategies to target Gen Z. Caitlin, do you want to take us through it? Absolutely. Um, we started with the furniture retailer Ashley, which is rebranding. The company has dropped Home Store from its name, apparently in a bid to connect with younger shoppers. So now it is really just Ashley. Um, that rebranding is also going to coincide with a nationwide refresh of a bunch of stores um, that starts at the end of this month with Atlanta, Los Angeles, Orlando, Salt Lake, and Tampa. Um, so they've picked a handful of markets to really go in with a more modern look, a handful of new products that are going to be more trend-driven at lower price points. And their idea is this is going to bring in younger shoppers for us. At the same time, Ikea has a new anime series on TikTok, <laughs> slightly different approach, um, but basically, um, they've partnered with an ad agency and a creative studio to do these short videos um, that depict young people in young people living scenarios. And each of these anime videos follows this protagonist as they encounter storage and design problems that can be solved by a shopping trip to Ikea. And last but not least, Apartment Therapy launched something called Dorm Therapy, which is a new vertical that is exactly what it sounds like. It is focused on college students living <laughs> on and off campus. All of that content is created by about 20 student editors across the US. So it'll be dorm tours, shopping guides, and they've partnered with Shop with Google to make everything especially easy to buy along the way. I love seeing everyone try to figure out what does Gen Z want? I, I, I mean, if anything, this tells us that, that everybody is trying to figure out what is going to bring this this younger consumer to them. And I'm I'm not convinced that there's a clear playbook on what's working. I, I loved, by the way, I mean, the Ikea anime videos were totally charming. The artwork was beautiful. It was really well done. And I think the, the time that I spent on dorm therapy was a bunch of really fun videos of, of young people sharing their spaces. So, I mean, I think all of these efforts are really interesting to see how these companies are trying to figure this out, right? 100%. I think it's interesting too, because each of them singularly, you're like, okay, I see that as an effort to attract a younger audience. But I think, you know, collectively, as we were kind of reporting on all three of them today, it felt really significant to me that these are such different approaches, you know, and such different strategies. But as you said, you know, there doesn't seem to be a cut and dried playbook yet. But it does seem like everybody has sort of a clear idea that what they're doing now will not be successful <laughs> with the generation coming up. Well, exactly. And, I, and I'm wondering, even thinking about Gen Z, because when with, with all of this discussion about Gen Z, they don't show up 
in all of the usual places that companies got used to spending, right? So they're not showing up on Facebook in the same way. They're not even as engaged in, in Instagram. They're 60% of TikTok's billion users, apparently, is Gen Z. And we get these sort of sad readings about them. There was this there was this McKenzie report that I that I delved into that talked about this generation is is nervous about things. Mm-hmm. They're nervous about the environment. They're nervous about the economy. They just came out of COVID. A lot of them were homeschooled for a year, two years. They have they have this heightened level of anxiety more than any other generation. They weren't worried about how to reach you and me, Caitlin. Right? No. They weren't they weren't spending time trying to figure that out. But I also think this is a generation that has been pretty vocal about what they believe in, um, how they want the world to be, and you know, how they expect the world to adapt around it. And I think that's that's good in a lot of cases. Um, I think there's something interesting that will happen as we really start to see what this generation wants from the shopping experience and from brands long term and as they start investing for the first time in things like home. Well, what I'm what I'm most interested to see because everybody tells me that this is the generation that again, going back to the anxiety, they are so anxious about climate change and the environment that they are the most sustainability-minded generation and they are the ones and they're and they're angry at, at, at the adults and and they they feel that uh, the baby boomers and those before have done a terrible job as stewards of the planet and they're eager to vote and and make real changes and and sustainability many of them say is issue number one for them <laughs> despite them uh, despite them calling for the dupes I don't know how they <laughs> how they rationalize those two things well uh, and hilariously to bring it back to Ashley for a second, I mean, Ashley's whole strategy is the idea of high style, trend driven product at a lower price point. I find it hard to believe that the lower price point is going to be a more sustainable product. And so it will be also interesting to see, you know, how much does a generation want to put that that belief in sustainability, that belief that you can make a difference with your dollars into actually making smarter, more considered purchases. That is such a great point. And, and that's where I feel there's this tremendous disconnect. And I don't know if it is, as we've talked about in the past on the show, is it a matter of education? Do they not fully understand that the dupes are often the things that are made in some far off land, perhaps by small children's hands and not done in perhaps an environmentally friendly way? And maybe they just haven't put those two things together yet in in calling for that. But to your point, they do seem to be very focused on how much things cost. And they feel like a lot of things feel very out of reach for them financially. That seems to be a big message from them. Yes? It's, It's an interesting link, too, because, I mean, I think we all sort of talked more during the pandemic about, you know, supply chain and people got more comfortable with the language of how a supply chain works and how that can change the way a product gets to market. But making the link from something like original design and investing in craftsmanship and supporting 
makers and designers in creating intellectual property that delights us and changes the world and adds function, like all of those great things, that education link all the way to, okay, but this product is 12 times more expensive than the thing you found for $100 on the internet. It's really hard as a brand or whoever else is doing that education to really close that loop, I think. I think that's a really challenging marketing message to deliver. I agree. And and I think the home industry is going to have its work cut out for it in, again, figuring out forget how to reach these people, but also how to educate them and and how to bring them into the inner circle, as you were saying. And I I feel like every generation starts off not respecting intellectual property (laughs) and not respecting those who came before and they want a different haircut or they want to dress differently or they they want to revolt in some way. I, I, I get it. And certainly I was the same way. But this this issue of craftspeople and artisans and these individual makers, that's that's going to be a hot button issue as, again, they close that loop with sustainability, which is what we're going to jump into next, because next piece up on the docket is an article that came out from the Financial Times about the consequences of home demolitions and this big hot topic, no pun intended, embodied carbon. And the article was in part about architect and designer Catherine Ramsden, who chose rather than knock down the home that everyone in the neighborhood thought she would just demolish, she decided, wait a second, there's there's such a, a huge environmental impact of me knocking down and then rebuilding. Let me see how I can renovate. Let me see how I can go about this in a different way. And it's part of this big conversation about embodied carbon and and all that goes into building materials and new construction, never mind uh, the demolition process, uh, but also how we should be thinking about this whole process of gut renovations and, and so much of what drives the industry that we cover, Caitlin. So what do you think? I think this article did a really good job of illustrating the difference between operational carbon and embodied carbon, which is not a conversation I've heard happening a lot to date. The article mentioned that in the process of not demolishing her home, Catherine Ramsden saved 86 tons of carbon dioxide, you know, from from choosing not to demolish the building and rebuild, which is equal to 21 years worth of emissions from running the average home in the United Kingdom. And I think so often we talk about getting off natural gas, switching to electric, the choices you can make in, you know, the utilities that running your home on a day-to-day basis can make, you know, don't have your home so cold in the summer, don't have your home so warm in the winter, like those small micro choices. And it turns out that, you know, our approach to renovations versus new builds, or, you know, as opposed to demolition and building fresh, have such a more significant impact. I thought that was a really great kind of illustration of the trade-offs and comparisons that we should be making and that we should be talking about more. I agree. And there's a lot of discussion around this whole issue. In my interview with John Sara, we talked a little bit about the impact of 
transportation and your carbon footprint of getting something from Asia over to the U.S., when it turned out that that was a relatively small percentage of the overall carbon footprint. What was really the big issue was the production of those pieces and the materials that were in them and all of that. And it was so similar to this discussion about the building materials and all of the things that we're not thinking about when we tear down and then and then rebuild. And to your point, how many years it would take to, to offset that. And, and, and so again, this discussion about the choices that we make and listen, not everyone agrees about all of this, right? I mean, I love that there was a real sense in this article, too, of kind of competing math at play, right? Because there was, I think, some discussion of the fact that you can purchase a home, tear it down, and rebuild a new one, and end up with a home that is worth more than the cost of all of those things combined. Like, there is still a real financial incentive in some places to do the thing that's worse for the environment. And so kind of acknowledging that this isn't always the financially obvious choice to make either, even if it might be the better choice for the environment. There's also something to be said for, you know, the incentives of everybody involved in the design process when you're approaching a new project. You know, I have an interview uh, with Kristen Giacomini of Flow Designs in Reno, Nevada, coming out on Friday as part of the 50 States Project. And she talks about not going in with the idea that she's going to renovate every single space she works on. And that, you know, a client may come to her and say, you know, oh, my kitchen really brings me down. I really hate it. And, she, you know, there's there's power in saying, look, like your cabinets are fine. Your countertop is the thing that's bumming you out. Let's replace your countertop. And she knows that she's not making a markup on the cabinet line that she carries. Mm. But there's a choice, right? So, th so there is a real trade-off for her in saying, well, we don't need to pull this out. She's losing a ton of money by doing that. But it's a better choice for the environment. It's probably a better choice for her clients. You know, and I thought that was a really interesting, you know, discussion to have with somebody who is kind of on the front lines of making those recommendations and making those choices every single day. Well, it, it's interesting, and I don't want to take anything away from the interview that I did with, with Annette Grant, which we're going to get to in just a little bit. But part of what came up in the discussion was how home media often makes you feel badly about your kitchen cabinets or right. your backsplash. 100%. And media tells you, oh my gosh, you need to rip all that out. How could you live with that another minute? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so there are a lot of conflicting pressures. So it's a it's a little bit of a struggle and, and I get it. And not everybody agrees that you shouldn't just go ahead and do what's going to make you happy. Right. If knocking down that house and building <laughs> a new one is going to make you happy, you get to do that. And and that's the other challenge too, right? Absolutely. Well, we're gonna move on because I couldn't have you on the show and not talk about the summer issue, Caitlin. And there's there's lots to discuss, the big focus on leadership. So tell us about it. Our summer issue of BOH Magazine is all about leadership. And there are a lot of ways to talk about that. But with this one, we decided to really center our coverage around how to be a better boss. Um, that was something that kept coming up in conversations that I was having with designers, You know, sort of this universal challenge of being a creative person who founds a design business and suddenly finds themselves managing one or two or 
20 people. And so we really just kind of dove into that conversation. The issue was a really beautiful 22-part package um, that really unpacks the ins and outs of management, employee development, and what it takes to foster meaningful personal growth in the workplace. So Caitlin, let's talk about yesterday's feature, which was a piece that you did with architect Jeff Dungan, who reinvented the bonus system at his firm and, and kind of did a deep dive into his whole structure. Absolutely. I got on the phone with Jeff and I was like, hey, so I hear you have a new bonus structure. And we ended up having this really wonderful conversation where he unpacked this existential crisis he was having about what it meant to be a boss. You know, and he was talking about the fact that the way so many architecture firms work is that you, you know, you pay a really high salary out of the gate and the trade-off is you overwork your employees and that, you know, the path to a profitable business is grinding, you know, kind of wringing as many hours out of your team members as you can. And what he noticed was that his employees' compensation wasn't really tied to the number of hours they were billing, right? They have a salary. And so his the pressure on him is really just to get people to bill more. And there wasn't necessarily a payoff for the employee. And he started to say, okay, well, how can I unpack that? He has a really funny story about how he realized about himself that that was what needed to change in his business. <laughs> yes, I love I love that story of him writing down, I want my workers to just work more. What's, and then he literally was that? like, I saw myself <laughs> with my own hand, write that down, and I threw up yeah. in my mouth. Like, you know, and, and that's so relatable, right? When the incentives are sort of not in line with how you want to be as a leader, with how you want to be as a boss, and where, you know, creating a good workplace and creating a profitable business feel like they're at odds. Um, but he really walked me through how he came up with a measurement for efficiency. Um, the short version is that, you know, he really took like the square footage of a project and the hours of drawing time on that project and created his own metric of efficiency. The end result is that the, you know, the first time he went back and did the math and paid out bonuses, he told me he wrote out 50% more in bonuses than he ever had in 20 plus years running his business. It's a little too soon to know if profitability kind of tracks. I know. I'm, I'm a little 50%. bit worried about the longevity of the firm with this with this whole big bonus put structure. But you know Sounds what? Sounds like he's writing some big checks. But I think uh, he did write some big checks. But he told me that he wasn't okay. worried that prof that the firm was profitable enough to support that level of bonuses. But I also think that if it just pushes someone to say. Okay, like, do the incentives I'm offering line up with compensation? Can I reimagine how I inspire my team to be more mindful about the work they're doing? You, you don't have to come to the same conclusions, but I think being willing to sort of step back and say, how can I fix this is actually the most important thing any of us can do. No, no question. And uh, I mean, all joking aside, what I thought was so great about what he was able to create and how he thought about it as well was there was plenty of room for the people who didn't necessarily want to get on board with this <laughs> new program, right? right? If you want to continue to work at the rate you're working now, then here you go. There's a program for you. You're not going to get as high a bonus, but you can work however you want to work. And, and I thought that that was interesting as well, because I'm sure not everybody was initially comfortable with a new program like this, and he, he created an out for them. So it's a really interesting conversation that you had with him, and it's a, it's a really interesting structure that he created and, and definitely worth a read. So I hope people will. And I think people will get a lot out of the issue. So I, I look forward to everyone enjoying that. All right. 
That's it for the news, but there's plenty more to check out on businessofhome.com, including business coach Sean Lowe's advice on fine-tuning your process to capture client referrals, and a roundup of the can't-miss industry events in August. We're going to get to my interview with Anetta in a minute, but first, a quick break. Forehand's newest collection of home furnishings and decor debuts this month and will include over 350 new pieces, inspired by everything from fluid forms to structural lines. Plus, don't miss their new leather upholstery, sustainably tanned using eucalyptus leaves. To join their trade program and shop over 6,000 styles, visit forehands.com boh. There's never an order minimum, and you'll enjoy even bigger discounts the more you spend. That's F-O-U-R-H-A-N-D-S dot com slash B-O-H. Hi, it's Caitlin again. Are you ready to build a better design business? Join hundreds of design professionals in Business of Homes membership community, BOH Insider, to access exclusive reporting and industry analysis that will keep you competitive and connected as you grow your firm. Membership includes complimentary access to weekly educational workshops with industry experts, a subscription to BOH Magazine, and a directory of skilled trades across the country. Insiders also get discounts on BOH's industry-leading job board, which is especially helpful when you're ready to expand your team. And later this year, insiders will begin to receive exclusive invitations to private field trips to unique destinations that unlock creativity and community. Learn more and join us today at businessofhome.com slash BOH Insider. My guest today is assistant professor at Bucknell University, Anetta Grant. Anetta, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You are pretty famous now after I don't even know how many stories have come out with the with the headline, HGTV is making our homes boring and us sad, which wasn't exactly the title of the paper that you wrote, but everyone is citing your research, yes? Yeah, it's been really interesting to see the level of interest and not only that, but the conversations that it sparked after, you know, homeowners and, and uh, people in industry alike have read the article and reflected upon it. Well, as we talked about in an earlier show, so Rachel's piece for the Washington Post, which was shared by many of the designers in our community, there were more than 1,500 comments on that article on the site. So to say that it sparked conversation is uh, is a bit of an understatement, I think. Yeah, it was it was fun to watch those comments come in, and you know they only let the uh, the comments roll for a couple of days. So yeah, yeah, there was a lot of interest right off the bat. So let's explain for people. So this Washington Post piece comes out, and there were there were many other articles that came out that that also picked up on this. Let's tell listeners where this came from and sure. and explain explain some of this research that you did. Originally, this paper, if I understand, was called The Displacement and Professionalization of the Home. So this was really born out of me looking around and seeing people rip out what seemed to be perfectly fine and good kitchens that were maybe five or 10 years old and replace them with new ones. So, you know, in a lot of cases, people were spending quite a lot of money 
And uh, sometimes people were even taking out an additional line of credit or mortgage in order to do these renovations. And so they were spending their money on this instead of, you know, in some cases, maybe taking a vacation or in some cases, maybe even retiring a little bit early mm. or investing in their children's education. So that seemed to me like a very curious um, sort of consumer phenomenon. And at the same time, I had um, just recently done a lot of backpacking in Central and South America. And I had done some homestays where I you know, lived with some families. And so I saw the way that they thought about their homes and mm. any projects that they had, or typically they were expanding the home. These were intergenerational homes where when they did any work to the home, they were thinking about it with an eye to how do we make this last and make this better for generations of our family to come, right? So all of this was in stark contrast with what I was seeing back in North America. And so I was really curious to know, what is it? What is it that drives people to want to spend money this way and to even save up and make other sacrifices in order to spend their money in their homes in this way? That is so interesting. And so so tell me how you go from why are these people ripping out their kitchens to, hey, let's get into actually putting together a research study around all of this. Yeah. So around that time, I, I embarked on this journey to do a PhD at Queen's University in Canada. And, you know, just in talking about different cultural consumer phenomena that I was seeing, this was the one that really stuck out to me as what is going on? How are people doing this? So that's when this idea was born of doing an ethnographic study um, to really do a deep dive into the consumer experience of what's happening in your homes that's driving you to want to renovate what seems like perfectly functional, fine homes, right? So we followed a, a, a set of people who were doing home renovations, and we did this over the course of several years. Um, so we interviewed people who um, were going through the process of home renovations or who had done renovations. And typically we started with asking them questions about what were their hopes and dreams for the eventual renovation that we, they were going to do. Then we also interviewed them while they were actually doing the renovations. And this brought up a lot of experiences where they had, you know, stressful, stressful decisions to make. So we really wanted to understand what was at the root of what, why is this causing so much stress? And then we interviewed those same people several years out to understand, okay, now you've done your home renovation. What was that like? And what has worked out well for you? Now we took all of this interview data and we also complemented it with what we would call a marketplace observation. So this is where we did a media analysis and the goal of this marketplace observation was to understand how do marketers and media portray the home and what it ought to be. And so it was really through this analysis of understanding, okay, on the one hand, what's the consumer experience? On the other hand, what is media telling them? And then bringing that together to develop our eventual findings. So you looked at through a group of magazines, if I recall, and, and we should point out again, this was there's a little bit of a Canadian focus here because of where you were getting your PhD. That's right. So they, there were several Canadian magazines. I think Better Homes and Gardens was also included in the mix. And then you were and then you were looking at quite a bit of HGTV, a lot of sort of flipping shows, a lot of, oh, we're going to we're going to fix this up and sell it kind of shows. Yes. 
Yeah, a lot of that. And, you know, part of the reason that we looked at that is that a lot of those shows create a lot of the messages that people feel they need to adhere to. So, right. you know, even if people feel like they're not necessarily about to sell their home, these are the messages that still tell them what their home ought to be. And really what we found is that that permeates into the consumer, into the homeowner experience, whether or not they're going to sell their home, whether or not they have, you know, any intention of selling it anytime soon. Well, it's so interesting in the in the paper, you use this term emplacement. Yeah. And and I wonder if you could just talk about that and, and what that means in, in this context, especially. The idea of emplacement really speaks to this sense that it feels like it's yours, it feels safe and secure, and you feel at ease and comfortable being there. You know, if you think about emplacement, it's the feeling that people often get if they're in their hometown, right? They kind of, they, they, they know and they understand the place and they just, it's, it's a feeling of being at home, if you will. What's changed today is that all of these um, home renovations media shows are saying that your home should align by the standards created by media. So if you look at images of homes today, instead of those bright colors that reflect your personality, there's a greater shift to neutral standardization. And the markers of standardization for now are things that we see are, are like gray walls and floors, white countertops, industrial style appliances, open concept kitchens, spa-like bathrooms, right? So instead of the home being a reflection of your own personality, the idea being perpetuated in media is that the home should match these standards. And so what that does all of a sudden is it starts to disrupt this sense of emplacement that homeowners and home dwellers once had with their homes. And, and that's where we get into this idea of displacement, which we spell with a Y, which describes kind of that uneasy, unsettled feeling that people get as a result of having to, to deal with this shift in how we understand what the home is and what it ought to be. That sets us up for going back to our research study now and hearing what's going on for these people whose lives you were following along as they go through this renovation process. And as you were saying, talking to them afterwards, how were they, yeah. how were they feeling? Essentially, overall, what we found is that people see home renovations media, so things like they watch HGTV shows, they read magazines, they see social media, and that changes how they view their own homes, right? So increasingly, these media outlets have made the home more of a financial asset to be maximized. Mm. So now when people look around their own homes, they're looking around their own homes with an eye to what does everyone else want? and not necessarily, what do I want? And so it's that that creates this sort of sense of uneasy or unsettled feeling for people in their own homes. And Dennis, I'm sure you've seen many of these shows, right? I have, yes. So you'll know that a common script in these shows is for a camera crew to go into a home and maybe they bring along some potential buyers and they may have a show host who's with them and they go around the home and they criticize everything that's been done with the home, right? So they may yeah. go into the kitchen and they'll, they'll point out, oh my goodness, who would put that backsplash with that countertop? I can't believe this linoleum floor. I can't believe that people would even live here. If I lived here, I would be so embarrassed. And if I lived here, I would be too embarrassed to have anyone over, 
right? So that's a pretty common <laughs> script that we see in these shows. And so what that script does is it, it sort of gives the indication to homeowners when they're looking around their own homes, they're thinking, gee, what would someone say if they came into my home? And that starts to get people then looking around their home with an eye to what does everyone else think and what does everyone else want, right? So essentially what these home or these home renovations media tell people is that there are certain standards that you need to adhere to. And if you don't adhere to those standards, then you're getting it wrong. <laughs> and not only are you getting it wrong, but people may think less of you for that. And not only that, but you may be hurting what for many people is their greatest financial asset. And it's that message that homeowners are hearing and, and that starts to make people feel quite uneasy in their own homes. Well, and we, and we spoke recently on the show about the Zillow report that came out, and I think it got referenced in a lot of the articles that your piece <laughs> was referenced that said, oh, the white kitchen is probably bringing your resale down by X hundred dollars, and, and gray is the hotter color, as you were saying earlier, and all of these, again, you're doing it wrong kind of notions, and what you described so interestingly as this market reflected gaze this right this the 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 market is is looking at you and saying "Mm, no don't (laughs) and and as you point out you're you're hurting the value of your greatest asset you are you are lowering the resale value of your of your home by making these more more personalized decisions yeah and what's interesting dennis is that so the problem becomes that people are trying to balance what they want with what prospective buyers might want, even if they have no intention of selling anytime soon. If you could pinpoint when you think that shift started to happen, when did these shows start to really have the influence that that sort of crept in over, over time? So think about all those big box stores that now exist where people can go out and have access to materials to renovate their homes. And I'm thinking about Home Depot. Sure. Lowe's, right? Any of these huge big box stores, historically, you know, if you're wanting to renovate your home, you had to go to a specialty blind store. You were going to another specialty store for flooring, the kitchen cabinets. That was yet again, another specialty store. And so what really helped to give the rise to this renovations market was the introduction of all of these big box stores where consumers now had much easier access to all of the materials needed to renovate their homes. In the last couple of decades, we've seen the introduction of more and more magazines just dedicated to renovations, to what your home should be, to how to decorate your home, right? And then again, in conjunction with those things, the rise of the existence of HGTV, um, you know, as an entire network and channel with constant daily, all day programming around what the home should be. So a few different things happened that really gave the rise to, you know, it, it made this market ripe for uh, people to be able to engage in home renovations. Well, it's so interesting to me because I talk to people of a certain generation <laughs> and and you bought your living room furniture and back in the day, you probably bought a living room set, right? It used to be you'd buy a bedroom set, you'd buy a living room set. And then that was your living room. Like, you were done. Yeah. One of the things that we found in our research is that consumers feel a lot of stress and pressure to constantly keep up with the standards that are being portrayed in media. 
Yes. The problem with that is that those standards are constantly changing and evolving, right? So for all the money spent and all the renovations done, what we found is that homeowners find that their home is never quite finished. Well, exactly. And I feel like, to your point, I feel like America wants you to think that. They want, to, of course, you're never finished because you need more stuff because we're a consumerist society. So how, I mean, what do you mean? Of course, you need to be constantly changing rooms around where hilariously, I grew up in a rent controlled apartment in New York City where we were never worried about some renovation that we were doing because we were never doing it. And P.S. My mother still lives in that apartment all these years later and it looks pretty similar to when I was living there as a kid. So case in point right there. But I feel like the as you were saying, the big box stores came along, the the demand and, and in your in your study, you, you talk about the explosion in spending just in the past few years uh, in the home industry. Yeah. So if we think about spending right in 1990, Americans were spending roughly 90 billion dollars on home renovations in 2022. That number was up to 418 billion spent. <laughs> Unbelievable. So Americans are really spending a lot more money on home renovations. In the case study, in the in the small group of people that you followed for, for years, I'm curious how many of them were imagining not being in their home for very long. Were, were people renovating with the idea of reselling or were they just renovating because they, they wanted to update the kitchen or other, other spaces? You know, we did interviews with um, 17 homeowners and out of those only only one they were a young couple and they were thinking they would probably resell in the short term um, but other than that what was really interesting is that a lot of our participants would talk about oh you know i'm doing this and it's going to help my resale value and we would ask you know do you envision reselling the home and in their long-term plans they didn't have any vision of selling the home most of our participants even though they were thinking about financial value, had no intention of selling anytime soon. Which is so fascinating to me, and, and, and perhaps one of the most interesting takeaways in all of this, we're, we're renovating for some resale that, that actually is unlikely to happen. And to your earlier point, you're, it's already going to be outdated, your notion of what's current, by the time you really get around to reselling it. And, and recently, when I was interviewing a, a real estate expert, Jonathan Miller, he talked about the fact that actually America is moving less than they had 20 or 30 years ago. There's this perception in the media because the very high end is buying multiple homes and moving around with lots of different houses, but the average person is actually moving less and is far less likely to be selling their home anytime soon, particularly with what we're seeing happening with interest rates and the low mortgages that people have. We see that people aren't putting their homes on the market, right? Yeah. And if you think about where this message comes from, right, think back to media. So think back to a common script of those HGTV shows. They'll plan out what their renovation is going to be. And then once the renovation is complete, there's often a, um, a screen capture at the end of the episode that points out, hey, you paid this much for your home. We uh, spent this much on renovations. And now look at the resale value of your home. And it's always, you know, much higher than you could ever yes. imagine, right? <laughs> and so there's a celebration that the homeowner has done really well. You know, look at you, you're a good homeowner, you're a good consumer. 
And so that tells people that, you know, even if I have no intention of reselling my home, the fact that I am the homeowner of a home that has gone up so much in value, that makes me a, a, a good homeowner, right? And so that's really where that message is coming from. Yeah. And the design industry would love nothing more than to lay the blame for all of this at the feet of HGTV. So is that, do you feel in your research that, that HGTV is the, is the primary culprit in this? Because if so, I mean, again, designers will rejoice and, and, the, and they will join you in the celebration. But, but tell me what you, after, after doing all of this research, I mean, it sounds like you've, you feel they played a pretty big role. Yeah. So, I mean, that was the, the focus of part of our study. Yeah. Um, so we did find that, but that's in conjunction with a whole media that exists around home renovations. But we find this in magazines dedicated to home renovations, but we also find it in lifestyle magazines. So we had looked at a couple of Canadian magazines called Chatelaine and Canadian Living. And mm. those are our are very popular lifestyle magazines, and they too perpetuate this idea, right? So it's it's really kind of media overall that is driving home this message. And certainly HGTV is part of that. After you spoke with all of these people going through this process and they shared with you the different anxieties that they did, it sounded like when you first began this project and you're, you were thinking back to your backpacking trips and, and people in in other countries that just seem to have a very different notion about what level of priority home renovating had in their lives versus living their lives. How did you end up feeling after doing this research? My friends and family after doing this research will ask me, hey, you know, I'm thinking about doing renovations. (laughs) What should I do? And I just say to them, don't bother doing it. (laughs) Right? So in a lot of cases, what people felt was that they were um, renovating to these standards. But then, as I mentioned, because those standards are constantly changing, all of a sudden, you know, a few years out, what they had renovated was already out of date. So we had one couple, they had decided to um, demolish their bungalow entirely and build an entirely new home on the same plot of land. Uh, They had a growing family and they wanted to accommodate their their growing family. And so there was a lot of emphasis on the kitchen. She was really excited about that. There was also a lot of emphasis on uh, the laundry area, right? Mm. Which, you know, she said my laundry area and the old home was dingy. It was in, you know, in the basement. I had to bend down to use the laundry machine. Now I have a dedicated space in the basement and we're even elevating the laundry machine so I don't have to bend down anymore. It's going to be great. But a lot of homes now have a dedicated space, or at least what media is telling us is that your home should have a dedicated space for the laundry room on the main or upper floor with industrial style laundry machines. And so in our interviews with this homeowner, post building this brand new home, one of her biggest disappointments was that they didn't put the laundry room upstairs. And she said, you know, now I'm seeing in a lot of magazines and on TV shows, people have a dedicated space for their laundry area. And I'm, you know, I'm really disappointed that we didn't do that. So this is just an example that helps to capture that feeling that these standards are constantly changing and it's really impossible to keep up with them. So even though they had built this brand new, beautiful, beautiful home, 
there was this feeling that it wasn't quite right because those standards had changed. Designers pride themselves on the fact that they are going to help this homeowner realize their dreams of personalization, that I'm, I am going to unearth how you really want to live and what's really going to make you happy in your home, and then we're going to create that. We are going to make this so personalized, it's going to be uniquely yours. And I hate to think of so many people living in a home that they're trying to make for someone else, and they don't even know which someone else, last year's someone else, or this year's, or what Zillow is saying, or what HGTV is saying. Who's even guiding these, these people, right? <laughs> Who is even guiding these people? <laughs> but I, I do have some happy endings as okay, well. Okay, please, yeah, share, yeah. okay. Which is that oftentimes what we saw, and the, the way that perhaps homeowners would push back on this idea that the home needs to be exactly like a magazine, um, is that they would follow in many cases the standards of what a home ought to look like based on media standards. Um, so they'd have a kitchen that looked like a magazine or a spa-like bathroom. And what they would do though, is they would pick particular parts of the house where in their words, they would go crazy. So they would bring in personalization, they would bring in color, they would bring in tiles that they loved from a trip that they took to Portugal. You know, this was the space and it oftentimes it was a space like a small bathroom on the main floor or, um, you know, uh, something in the upstairs in the master suite uh, where they would really personalize it and do the things that they had been dreaming of. So people did find ways to reflect their own personalities within their home while also striking a balance to meet the standards portrayed in media. Do you think that we should try and, and pressure some of these home media? I don't know how much pressure we can exert on HGTV, but, but do you think that learning that, that so much of the messaging seems to, to, to really be having a negative impact on, on people, do you, do you think we should encourage them to to, to reverse this in some way or, or should they? I mean, what, what, what do you think the answer is there? I think that's an interesting question, Dennis. And the consumer response that we're seeing from this article, right? And in many cases, if you look through those comments and you mentioned the Washington Post article received 1,500 comments in uh, just a short yes, couple just, of days. Exactly, just in a couple of days, 1,500 comments. Right, so that says to me that there is some appetite here amongst homeowners to perhaps break out of this need to adhere to these standards, right? So I think what'll be interesting to see is that given this um, high level of consumer response, it really does seem like there is an appetite and perhaps you know the context is is ripe for consumers to start pushing back on, you know what, I'm going to do my home the way I want to do it. Now, what eventually happens typically is when there's this type of consumer response is that, you know, companies have sort of no choice but to respond in some way. So what's going to be interesting to watch over the next, you know, couple of years, few years is, you know, perhaps that becomes something that media starts to incorporate in mm. their advice toward how do you do your home. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I've so enjoyed having this conversation and, and I thank you so much for making the time to, to talk with us about it. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Dennis. I really also enjoyed it.
We're getting to the end of the show here, and normally we would take a second to highlight anything going on in the industry that might have caught our eye. But but this week, Caitlin, I feel we have to talk about what's happening in the land of social media, starting with uh, threads maybe having a little bit of a drop off in the enthusiasm. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, last week they were setting records. They had, I think, 100 million signups in a five day span, which is a lot. But according to some <laughs> of the latest market research, from an intelligence firm called Sensor Tower, user engagement has fallen pretty significantly and pretty quickly. They found that users are spending about half as much time on the app per day um, as just under a week ago, and um, total users have already dropped by about 20%. I read that, and the first thing I thought was like, yeah, that actually very neatly <laughs> follows my own personal threats <laughs> consumption. I don't know about you. What do you make of this, Dennis? I'm surprised how many designers reached out to me and said, by the way, I, I won't be on there as much. So just want to let you know. Uh, <laughs> and that happened pretty, pretty mm-hmm. darn quickly. And I never really found wildly compelling reasons to be on there. Maybe they didn't have enough in place when they rolled it out. Maybe there weren't enough ways to find other things. I, I don't know. I mean, Did everyone want to have conversations in that way on the site? I did not personally. You know, I think the thing I struggled with the most was not being able to really segment the conversations I was seeing to engage with people, you know, kind of in in self-created silos. Um, And so seeing all of your interests and all of your childhood friends collide in one place, um, (laughs) it just didn't land for me personally on threads. There was also the issue of do I post this here? Do I post it on Instagram? Right, Is it, right. Right? And for most people, they only had a fraction of the followers on threads that they had on Instagram. And so you weren't reaching as big an audience as you were on Instagram. And so people were confused, frankly, about do I double post? Was there some rule we were breaking? Also, it reminded me a little bit when, when something would capture people's imagination it reminded me of the early days of Twitter. Wait, Twitter? <laughs> Are we even calling it that anymore? Twitter no. doesn't exist. Wait, exactly. That is the other fascinating component of all of this. So Elon Musk, who, I mean, nice to have $44 billion that you can just throw away and not care about because obviously nobody has cared less about a $44 billion investment than Elon Musk, who whatever little value there was, was probably in the brand itself. That brand literally being torn down from buildings. No more talking about little birds. Wait, wait, wait. so for anybody who hasn't heard it yet, Right. Elon Musk rebranded Twitter as X and replaced the little bluebird logo with an X. Exactly. And he's he he likes X. He's got a lot of X in his in his life and the kids and the whole thing. But X is going to be a financial site, a, a town hall, a place where you can see the future. I mean, there are so many promises about the excitement of X. I don't know. What do you what do you make of it? It sounds like a place of my nightmares personally. No. <laughs> um, financial center, town hall, like ooh. it's interesting because early in Elon Musk takeover, I read a really interesting article that stuck with me because someone was talking about how Elon Musk is a very specific kind of Twitter user or he was, and yet he really molded that platform 
based on his very hyper-specific needs as a Twitter user who wanted to be found, to be on a soapbox, and to just sort of like have everybody looking at him. And how much for most people on Twitter, that wasn't actually their core motivation. What was clear from day one when he bought it, and we're going to tie this right back to the show, watch this. <laughs> it was so clear that he was in no way interested in renovating. He was interested in completely demolishing. Right. There was no way that he was just going to redo, move some furniture pieces around. He was going to completely tear it to the ground and start over. We'll have to see what the carbon impact is <laughs> of, carbon of emissions Twitter be damned. being yeah. completely demolished. But that was clearly always his desire. And now he's done it. And we'll just have to see what happens next. Stay tuned for that. All right. That's all the time we have today. Caitlin, cannot thank you enough for joining us these past few weeks while Fred has been away. It's been really fun to be in the co-host seat. Um, I'm giving it back to Fred after this, but it's been such a joy to join you. So thanks for having me. It has been such a pleasure to have you, and I thank you again. And thank all of you so much for listening. If you want to keep up with the latest news in the design industry, browse job listings, or take a workshop, visit us online at businessofhome.com. If you want to get in touch with the show, write to us at podcast at businessofhome.com. This episode was produced by Fred Nicolaus and Lizzie Reisinger and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back with you on Monday.